one of the most helpful things about reading from church history is that you are very often reading about the same kind of things that are happening to us today, the same kind of things that we believe, the same kind of things that should be priorities for us, and yet you're getting a different perspective on those things. Uh, whether we like it or not, we are very much bound uh, by the constraints of the culture in which we have been raised and in which we live. There are issues today that are of significance that drive our thinking and our priorities when it comes to the faith. But by reading from someone who does not live in our time, who is coming from a different cultural perspective, uh, they're going to bring nuances and flavors uh, and help us to have a larger perspective than we would have on our own. Now, besides that very helpful uh, thing, uh, benefit from reading church history, uh, frankly, reading from church history also gives you a lot of cool quotes, okay? Uh, the, the way people can phrase things and, and the little observations, uh, just uh, do a Google search for Luther Table Talk sometime and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But for this morning, I want you to hear from St. Augustine and talking specifically about the Gospel of John, but really all of John's writings. Uh, so that would be the Gospel of John, the first, second, and third letters of John in the book of Revelation. Here is what Augustine said, and it was this. John writes in such a way that you are presented with a pool of water that is shallow enough for a child to play in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. You get that? John's writings is shallow enough for a baby to play in and yet deep enough for an elephant to drown in. What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant was this. If you take uh, Greek in college or maybe even in high school, uh, what you will find is that very often you'll start translating in John's writings, usually 1 John, because the grammar is so simple. John is not a complex, he's not Paul. You know, Paul has these sentences that would get X'd up because they're, they're run-ons in English. And, and you, know, you struggle with translating them because it's one conjunction after another. And, it, and they're taking up a whole paragraph. John's not like that. He is simple. He is straightforward to the point. And yet, the simplicity of his grammar and his writing betrays a depth of theological understanding that just boggles your mind. I mean, think about this. How, how easy is it to teach a child to read or understand a very, very simple phrase, God is love, right? That's simple, isn't it? Yeah, think about, think about the implications of what John is writing there. God is love. Not just God is loving, not just God loves people, God is love. You think about that, you meditate upon that, and you find yourself very quickly feeling like the elephant. You, you, you are out in, in, suddenly in the depth of this, this truth that is staggering, even mind-boggling. And yet that is exactly uh, what you find from the pen of John. So who is this man, John? Uh, who is this apostle? Well, he is called the beloved disciple. That means in contemporary uh, terms, that on some level he was the closest thing Jesus had to a best friend during his earthly life. He was a young man from a wealthy family when Jesus called him and his brother to be disciples, and yet Jesus was also a sinner, or excuse me, uh, John was also a sinner, uh, just like us. And you'll find that very much his faults are on display uh, in the Gospels. He is, uh, after all, one of the sons of thunder, one who is very quick to call down judgment upon those who would not believe in Jesus. 
And yet in all of this, what we see is also a deep loyalty to Jesus from John. Uh, like all of the disciples, John fled the scene of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet John never totally abandons Jesus. He is from afar, he is hiding in the shadows out of fear, and yet he follows Jesus all along through his trial, uh, through his uh, beating and torture on through his crucifixion. John is never far away. He can always glimpse Jesus from where he is at. Part of his ability to do that, perhaps some of the other disciples may have wanted to, but they did not come from the kind of family who had the wealth and clout that they could have been in the temple area uh, and, in the, and in the trial area to see what was going on, and yet John was. And to his credit, he took full advantage of his family standing to be with his Savior. In fact, Jesus so loved John and John so loved Jesus that as he is dying on the cross, Jesus looks at John and he basically says, I am trusting you to care for my mother. There's not a lot of people I would say that to even in my own life. And yet John is one that Jesus trusted with this task. When the news of the resurrection came to the disciples, it was John who outran the others to get to the tomb first to see whether or not it was truly empty. And after a lifetime of loving and preaching and reflecting on Christ, John finally puts pen to parchment and writes uh, the very last chronologically of the Gospels uh, to come to us. He writes his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And he tells us very specifically why he did this. Towards the end of his Gospel in chapter 20, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It may not be immediately obvious to you, but if you at all begin to read history, you realize there are documents, there are files, there are books, there are all manner of writings that men have done and that are lost the ravages of time. In fact, we've probably lost a million times more than what we have preserved for us, and yet 1,900 years, over 1,900 years later, we still have this short book that John himself wrote for the very express reason that we even today might believe Jesus was the long-awaited Christ, that He was more than just a man. He was the very Son of God. And he gives an accounting of all the signs that Jesus did to show this is who he was, to authenticate and validate our belief, a belief which ultimately leads to life with God. So this is the gospel that we want to consider this morning. And we want to do so from the prologue that John gives us through this uh, amazing uh, perspective and reality of who Jesus is by which we are to understand the rest of the gospel. That is uh, John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. So let's uh, uh, read these and then we'll begin to seek to understand what they have to say to us this morning. Follow along as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through Him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. May God bless the reading of His Word. When John Piper, and someone that you'll be familiar with, was studying to complete his degree of theology from the University of Munich, he took a class on the Gospel of John. The class lasted 18 weeks, and he says that for the first 13 weeks, all the professor did was lecture on these 18 verses. That's not to the professor's fault, but rather to his credit. For as Calvin says about this chapter, here contained is much more than our minds can take in. Nevertheless, this is what we're going to look at this morning, and I'm not going to take 13 weeks to do it. By God's grace, though we will not exhaust its meaning or plunge to the bottom of its depths, I hope we will be able to see the glory of Christ from these verses this morning. And in doing so, understand why it is we should believe that He is the Christ, even the Son of God, who can save us. So four reasons why we should believe in Jesus from this text. First of all, this. We are to believe in Jesus because He is one in fullness with God the Father. We should believe in Jesus because He is one in fullness with God the Father. When we read all the other gospel accounts, we've looked at two, we will look at the next one in two weeks, or the last one, Luke, in the next two weeks. All the other gospels open with an account of Jesus' birth. We read about Mary and Joseph, shepherds and swaddling clothes, and all those things make for great readings with our families at Christmas. But John goes back even further. He pushes all the way back to eternity itself, echoing the very first words of the Bible in Genesis 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was a couple of years ago now that I was uh, conversing with some Mormon missionaries who had come to the house, and uh, the, I, was, I was said, okay, tell me, tell me what you guys believe. And uh, they were going through some things, and they quickly came to Jesus. And one of the things that uh, we paused and we talked about for several minutes uh, until it was clear that no one was going to change their minds at that time when they left, and that was this. They were very quick to say, of course, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. To which I responded, yes, but do you believe He was also God the Son? To which they said no. And, and, and frankly, as an aside here, one that I will not charge you for, uh, if you're ever wondering if some group or not is a Christian group authentically, this is where you immediately go to, what do they believe about Jesus? And that gets right to the heart of the matter. And it was very clear, uh, frankly, that, that Mormonism is not a Christian uh, denomination regardless of what they say and believe they are to be because they do not believe that Jesus was not just God's Son, but God the Son. Yet that's the inescapable truth of John's Gospel, particularly in these first few verses. The Word was with God and the Word was God. 
not was a God, as some denominations will want to translate. No, it, he was God. He is God. And with these simple words, we, don't we find ourselves plunged into the deep end of the theological pool? We find our minds trying to grapple with this reality. Jesus, the Word, is both separate from God. He is with God, yet He is also fully one with God. He is God. He is not part of God, but He is God in His fullness. And yet, and yet, he, John can also say that the Son, the Word, was with God. He is both one with the Father, and yet He is also in some way distinct from the Father. And we've talked about this several weeks ago when we look at the Trinity, so we will not uh, dwell too long on here. Nevertheless, I do want us to, to make sure that we understand the importance of this idea of the deity of Christ. You see, today very often when you read books or hear people interview, one of the th first things they will say is, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That was something his disciples uh, invented later. That was really the difference between uh, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Uh, they will point to Paul as one who invented this idea that Jesus was uh, divine, although he himself never claimed it. Well, what about John? John is clearly writing here and saying, uh, Jesus, we will find the Word made flesh, was God. Where did he get this from? Was this just his own idea? Was this his way of perpetuating the reputation of his best friend? No. No, he shows us very clearly that the reality is Jesus did claim to be God, and it was obvious from all those around him. So much so in chapter 8, we read Jesus is arguing with the Jewish religious leaders claiming to be greater than Abraham, and they say, how in the world are you greater than Abraham? To which he responds, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am and immediately John says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, why would, they, why would they get mad and throw rocks at him? Because Jesus wasn't just saying, I'm older than Abraham. He was saying, I am far superior to Abraham because I am the God of Abraham. I am the Almighty, the great I am, the Jehovah about which we just sang. That's what Jesus claimed for himself. Elsewhere also, uh, John says uh, the Jews responded the same way. In chapter 5, he says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Not because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, he, I am equal with God because I am the Son, He is the Father, I am God. Furthermore, we're told here that as God, Jesus made everything. Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So just in case you didn't get it the first time around, all things were made through him. John makes it clear there's nothing that came into a being. There's nothing that exists that was not made through Christ. John picks up this theme throughout his book and will speak not just of creation, but also new creation as well. And John will show evidence that Jesus is divine. He is the divine creator by showing all of the miraculous signs. I take that back, not all of them. A few of the miraculous signs, the many that Jesus did, that show that he's not just someone who is powerful. He has the authority of one who creates and so you just think about what he does. Jesus finds a man not whose eyes have deteriorated because of some sickness or illness. He finds one who has been born blind. Born blind. 
The very eyes in his sockets are deformed and do not work from birth. There is no chance of healing for this man. And yet what does Jesus do? He makes him new eyes. He makes him new eyes. He is the creator. John tells us of the one who would stand in the boat and yell down storm raging. Even just this past week, we saw uh, uh, high winds, powerful lightning. Can you imagine trying to go outside and say, all right, now you guys just shut up and calm down because you're scared of my kids and we all want to sleep. Yeah, what's going to happen? You know, probably a lightning bolt right between the eyes or something, right? It's not going to happen. But to the one who created the winds, to the one who created lightning, to the one who established the universe, he can say, be silent, and they will obey. He is the one who can walk actually above the water itself, demonstrating his authority over it. He is the one who can take a handful of fish and loaves and create more after its pattern to bring them into existence with a prayer so that thousands are fed. This is not just some prophet. This is just some nice teacher. This is God, the creator, displayed before us. D.A. Carson gives one example of why this is so important when it comes to our evangelism. How many times have you attempted to share the gospel, perhaps even with family members? And they'll respond by saying something along the lines of, I'm glad Jesus works for you. I'm glad he makes you happy or makes you content or whatever it is he does. But Jesus isn't for me. I don't need God. And sometimes they'll push, they'll say, just, you know, back off talking about this Jesus stuff or else I may not really think I need your friendship anymore. D.A. Carson says, how are we to respond to that? Just say, okay, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you. No, what he says is we need to say something like this. The one thing I cannot do is completely back off from you and from telling you about Jesus because you do not see how your response is so incredibly dangerous. God made you. He made you, and therefore you owe Him. The whole basis of human accountability is bound up with the fact that you are a created being. You are created by Him and for Him. Every breath that you breathe comes by His sanction. He allows you that air and gives it to you as a gift. For you to think that you are autonomous and can go your own way and live without Him, that you do not need Him, is the most fierce evidence that you're truly lost and destined for hell that you truly are in need of hearing more about Jesus. You see, because Jesus is one with the Father in fullness, because He is fully God, He cannot be ignored. He cannot be shoved aside. He cannot be relegated to history. More than that, though, it is precisely because He is God that we have all the more reason to be confident in what He says, in what He teaches, and in what He offers when He says, Come to Me, and I will give you saving, eternal life. We are to believe in Jesus because He is fully one with the Father. We are also to believe in Jesus because He makes known the presence of the Father. We are to believe in Jesus because He makes known the presence of of the Father. John says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christian circles, we often talk about the incarnation, that uh, big 25 cent theological word that we use to describe Jesus' human life. 
in this world. The word simply means in fleshes and is taken from the very language of these verses. Jesus, the word, in fleshes God. The word became flesh. By that, understand, John is not meaning the word donned flesh like a coat. He is not hiding under flesh. He is not just assuming flesh or putting it on or dressing up in it. Jesus, or John says, Jesus the word became flesh. That means he became a human being. He didn't stop being God. He didn't cease to remain one with him. Nevertheless, at the same time, one with the Father, he also became one with us by becoming fully human. And if that wasn't significant enough for us to think about, thank you very much, Apostle John, but he goes on to say even more than that. Now, it may not be apparently obvious in English, but you can think about it this way. Every culture has trigger words. That is to say, there are words that are so associated with a significant uh, person or event that when you say them, regardless of any context, your mind is immediately drawn to that place, person, significant event, right? So for some of you this morning, if I were to begin to talk about a wedding and I would say marriage, half of you just thought of a movie called The Princess Bride, right? Yeah, exactly. The, now the other part of you, if I begin to talk about Wolverines, are either thinking about a comic book character or your sports team, right? I mean, those are trigger words. I could be talking about hunting practices of Wolverines, and you're still thinking, rah, rah, go, get the touchdown, okay? Or snicked, let's go get Magneto. One of, the, one of the two, I don't know what it is. But you're thinking about something other than what I'm talking about as a trigger word. Likewise, when John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. A tabernacle is just a, can just be a Greek word for tent. Jesus came, he took on flesh, the word became flesh, and he pitched his tent among us. That is to say, he lived among us, he dwelled among us. But the problem is, that's just not what it means for those that are familiar with the Old Testament, is it? If you are familiar with the Old Testament like John's readers were, Jews of the Diaspora, as he is trying to convince that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Messiah they've been waiting for, they're familiar with the Old Testament, and when he began by saying, in the beginning was the Word, they're immediately thinking, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. Likewise, when he says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, their minds are immediately not thinking of just some tent you pitched a desert, but of a very specific, significant tent the dwelling of God Himself among the Old Covenant people. That's what they're thinking of. In the Old Testament, where had God disclosed Himself? In the tabernacle. Where had the glory come down? In the tabernacle. Where was the pillar of cloud and fire? Over the tabernacle. And now suddenly John says, Jesus, the Word, tabernacles among us. It's not lost on his readers what he's saying here. He's preparing them for Jesus' own words in chapter 2 where he says, I am now the true tabernacle. I am the true temple. I am the place where God and people meet. I am the place where sacrifice of atonement is offered that brings peace between God and man. So even today, if you want to be in the presence of God, you don't go to a building. You don't go to a tent. You don't even come to this place. You go to Christ. That is where the presence of God is fully manifest in the person of the Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh. And that's why you should believe on the name of Jesus. This is why you should trust Him to make you right with God. Because it's in Him that the very presence of God 
is made manifest. Thirdly, we should believe in Jesus because He not only manifests the presence of God, He is not only fully one with God, but He also reveals the glory of God the Father. Believe in Jesus because He reveals the glory of God the Father. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, have you ever thought to ask why John would use this unique title for Jesus? He is the only person in all the New Testament that, that explicitly says, he identifies Jesus with the title, the Word. Now, this morning, we, we, we got shades of that, didn't we, from Hebrews 1. But John is the only one that specifically says that Jesus is the Word. What does this idea of the Word mean? Well, it simply means very much what it means today. It's, it's an outward expression. It speaks to some message given through speech. And so as Jesus uses the same word in chapter 8, He says, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. What does He mean? He means when I speak words, I give a message that has me, the message of life and salvation. And if you abide in those things, if you dwell in them, if you trust in them, if you believe in them, then you show that you are my disciples. So here, going back to chapter 1, John is saying, in the beginning was the message of God. Or in the beginning, God spoke. He expressed Himself. Think about the significance of that. God was silent for 400 years. And when he finally speaks again, he doesn't just send another prophet. He speaks through Jesus Christ, who did not just bring a word from the Father. He was the word from the Father. You cannot separate Jesus from the message. You have another religion like Muhammad or like Islam where you have Muhammad the prophet. Could God have used someone else, another person? Absolutely. Could he, he could have raised up somebody else. Not so with Jesus. He, he's not just another prophet. He is the very embodiment of the message God is speaking. It has to be him. It's nonsensical to say the message of Jesus without also thinking of the person of Jesus. They are bound together. He is the very self-expression, the, the self-revealing of God. He is the Word. And John goes further and explains that from the fullness of Christ, in verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the ESV gets it a little wrong here. John doesn't say grace upon grace, but rather grace for grace. Well, that's what it says literally. In other words, this grace is exchanged for another grace. As we've seen before, the law that was given to Israel was not just a series of demands. It was a gracious gift from God. Yet while the law given through Moses was a gracious gift, that to which the law pointed was grace and truth par excellence. In other words, grace and truth of the truest kind. That's what John is telling us. The significance here, again, hopefully if we're familiar with the Old Testament, is this idea of grace and truth will become immediately apparent to us. Exodus 34, Moses is seeking a vision of the glory of God. Do you remember that? We've talked about it, I know, several times. We've alluded to that. It's a key text in understanding the Bible and how you put the Bible together. God's frustrated with Israel because of their sin. He's thinking he's going to start over with Moses. And, uh, and, and Moses intercedes for Israel and asks God to forgive them and to be merciful to them, to continue to be their God. 
And he says, if you're going to ask me to still lead this people, then I need something more to live off of. I need something deep in my soul that is going to be a bedrock for me to draw on when these people get rebellious, when they sin, when they complain and grumble. And he says, God, show me your glory. And he says, I can't do that. He says, you'll, more or less, you'll be incinerated. Uh, I, but I'll, I'll let kind of the, you know, if, if, if the, the glory's out here somewhere like the sun, then I'll kind of cover your eyes and just kind of uh, give you just a, kind of a quick glimpse. So I'll let all my goodness pass in front of you. It's like the, it's like the, 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 the little edge after effect of the glory passing by. And when he reveals this goodness to God, he proclaims his name. The goodness and the glory of God is bound up with the very character of God. He says, the Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding literally in grace and truth. And what does John tell us? He tells us, here comes the Son of God, the Word made flesh dwelling among us. He's telling us that He shows us the glory of the Father. He is the very embodiment of God. In Christ we have beheld the unique one, Himself God, who is in constant fellowship with the Father, who has revealed God to us. Now it's an amazing truth, but my fear is that when we read texts like this, our familiarity with the words take the life out of what is being said. Strive to be the elephant here, not the baby, okay? Strive to, to think about this in ways that you have not thought before. Because people today are searching for God. They, they want to know who God is. They want to know what He looks like. They try to understand what in their mind might be a he, a she, or an it. And they do it by reading all kinds of books from uh, bizarre things that you find tucked away in a bookstore to things that Target and Walmart admire, bestsellers on the very front of the racks. But John is telling us, I've seen God. I've seen the glory of God the Father. And I've seen it in His Son, Jesus Christ John is telling us, if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what God acts like, if you want to know the character of God, stare at His Son, Jesus Christ. Because in Him, the fullness of the glory of God is revealed. In verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And for John, this is not just an abstract theological idea. This is not just theory, it's reality. And he says, you know, uh, people bore witness to this fact. He talks about John the, factus, uh, John the Baptist rather, bearing witness to the reality of Christ. This is, you cannot separate the Christ of, of faith from the Jesus of history. They are one and the same. In, in, in fact, frankly, Christianity, uh, more than many other religions of the world, is rooted so much so in history that if you were somehow able to show Jesus never existed, that the apostles were all frauds, and all of this was made up, and that none of it ever happened, it wouldn't be like, well, we'll just, you know, you know we'll just kind of go on and adapt, and it doesn't really matter. No, Christianity is destroyed. Because what John is saying, and what John the Baptist testified to, 
is that more than just an idea about God, God took on the flesh of humanity. Like one of us, you could touch him, you could feel him, you could hear him. On a hot day in Palestine, you could smell him. He was a real person who took on flesh and stepped into history. And he did that. He did that to provide salvation to sinful people. Jesus has come and has revealed something of the glory of the mystery of the triune God. And he did that so that his sinful people might have life. This is the last reason we are to believe in Jesus, according to John. We are to believe in Jesus because he gives life with God the Father. He gives life with God the Father. John says in verse 4, In Jesus the Word, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Now, when you're thinking about this talk of light shining in darkness, particularly at verse 4, it's coming right after we've been told in verse 3 that the Word creates uh, everything. Nothing was made that didn't come, that wasn't made by Him. And we're tempted to think about the first light of creation when God said, let there be light and light uh, uh, shone in the darkness. And yet, uh, John is a little bit more clever than that. He's anticipating this theme of light and darkness that he's going to play out throughout the whole of the gospel. Light representing enlightenment, understanding, being laid bare and understanding before God and darkness being consumed in sin and ignorance. He's foreshadowing more than just daylight or sunlight. It's a moral light shining into a, an, an immoral darkness. So for example, in chapter 3 we read this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here, light is clearly a moral direction that drives people to see their sin when they are exposed to it. Later, Jesus himself in chapter 8 would speak to the people. He would stand before all gathered in Jerusalem and he would cry out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus says he came into the world bringing the spiritual light which people by which people might be saved from darkness and have life. But it's important that we not just think about who the light is or what it does, but where it comes into. John says the darkness is of the world, that the light comes to this dark world. Understand when John speaks about world here, he's not speaking of quantity as much as he is quality. Sometimes we, when we say, you know, uh, y'all, everybody in the world knows this, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about individual people, aren't we? We're thinking about uh, the largeness of the world and the truth that they may or may not know. But that's not, when John uses this word world, that's usually not how he means it. It's the word cosmos, and what it speaks to is the, is the kind of um, immorality, the sinfulness, the rebellion of the world system against God. 
It's not just sin as if, oh, I tried hard and, and, and I derailed. I fell off the tracks and lost my way. No, when John talks about the sin and the darkness of the world, he's talking about open rebellion against God. He's talking about cosmic treason. He's talking about a war against the moral authority and reign of God over our lives. So it's no surprise that he says the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. He says when it comes to the world, they love sin more than they love God. And so back in chapter 1, John says Jesus the light came into the world, specifically verse 11, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Now who are his own? Well, it's clearly the covenant people of God, his own people that he has been working with and building and loving and forgiving and teaching for so many years. He came to them as their Messiah, but they did not receive them. Why? Because they're worse than everyone else? No. They're simply typical of the whole human race. They live and move in darkness and they love it. Even today you have someone who uh, clearly is a brilliant man who, when you look from a medical perspective, whose life has been sustained far longer than anyone else in his condition by a gracious and loving God. You have a man like Stephen Hawking who can know and write books on physics and and seek to understand the complexities of the universe, but he looks at the whole thing and he says, ah, we don't need God, we've got gravity. What? Stephen, you're so brilliant, but what in the world are you thinking? In fact, scientists today, many of them, if you press them, they are more likely to believe in the existence of aliens than they are the existence of a God who created everything. Why is that? John tells us it's because they love the darkness. If they were to admit the existence of God, they may have to step out into the light that would reveal their hearts. It would point out the flaw of their lives, their their immorality before Him, their sinfulness before God, and they would have to give an account of that. And rather rather than repent of their sin, they would rather stay in the darkness. Ignorance of God, loving and cherishing their sin. That's that's the way the world is. Frankly, that is the way that we are unless God does something for us. Notice he says in verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, he came into his own, they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, that is received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus comes into the world as a shining light, but we love the darkness. We love to hide. We love to do our own thing and have no king and cherish the wickedness that exists in our sinful hearts. And yet God comes graciously and gives light to our hearts so that we might believe. He brings spiritual life so that we are no longer in darkness. We can clearly see who Jesus is and why, though it's painful to be exposed in our sinfulness, it is so much more joyous and satisfying to our souls to be in the light. So much so that even we who believe, John says, we're no better than those who reject morally because ultimately our belief has come from God. We believe not because it's been an act of our will, but because God has given birth to that decision in our hearts. We call out to God because He has first called out to us. 
God is gracious and calls people out of sin to faith in him. The question is, how can he give this right to become the children of God? How can those who are sinful and deserve death and hell, how can he give them the right to be God's children, children of the light? It's simple. It's because of the cross. In fact, it is there, John says, where God's glory is most clearly seen. We are tempted to think of something like the transfiguration and say, the glory of Christ was seen so clearly. And yet John says, because this is what Jesus says in John chapter 12, no, God's glory is most supremely seen in the cross and in the resurrection of the Son because of it. It is Jesus' death for sinners. It is His taking their blame, their burden, their guilt in their place that the glory of God's character is most clearly seen. When I was in seminary, one of my professors uh, told the story of his family. He had, uh, I believe, three young kids, uh, and they were going to visit one of uh, his sisters, their aunt, and on the way, uh, on this road trip to go see them, they began talking about the Bible and spiritual things. And one of the things that he said was, look, regardless of any kind of ethnic background, regardless of age, regardless of money, ultimately, ultimately there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that know Jesus and are Christians and those that don't know Jesus and are lost. And this was kind of a mind-boggling concept for these kids. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Not male and female. Not black and white or Hispanic and Chinese or whatever else. No, saved and unsaved. And so uh, they said, well, we're going to see Aunt so-and-so. Is Aunt so-and-so saved? And uh, Dr. Wright said, I don't know. I, I don't think she is. I'm not sure, though. So they were quiet and went on to other things, singing or whatever, and the van pulled up and the doors unlocked and they opened out and the kids jumped out ready to see and the oldest boy ran right towards his aunt, gave her a hug, looked her square in the face as only a kid could do and say, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Well, you can imagine the conversation that ensued after that, but here's the reality. How often are we deathly afraid of asking that question of people? Are you a Christian? How often do we not want to ask that question of ourselves? Are you a Christian? The reality is there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those that accept the Son, who heed the message of the Word, who see Jesus as the Christ and step into the light of His glory, and those who stay in the darkness. For those who step into the light, they are given the right to become the children of God. They are given life with God now and on into eternity. And those who stay in the darkness are given exactly what we all deserve, death, hell, forever, apart from God and His glory. This morning the question is again asked, are you a Christian? If the answer is no, then I would ask again, why not? What is holding you back? The answer, if the answer is yes, then I would ask simply this, does your life reflect it? Is it obvious that you are a child of the light? Do you delight in Christ? Do you obey Christ? Do you share Christ? Father, as we think about your son, Jesus Christ, as we think about all that he is in the amazing complexity of the incarnation, of being the second person of the fellowship of the triune God, three persons and yet one God, fully God, fully man. Father, it truly is staggering to our minds, and yet, Father, this is the reality. If that were not so, 
then we could not be saved. For Father, if He was only human, He could certainly identify with us, but even in seeking to die for us, He can never fully satisfy our debt of sin before You. Therefore, He had to be fully God as well. If He was just fully God, then Father, there would be no way He could have offered Himself as a sacrifice because He could not identify with us in our humanity. He could not stand in our place. And so, Father, though it is difficult sometimes for a mind to grasp, it is so essential that we believe Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is fully human and fully divine. And, Father, I pray that with that foundational truth in mind that we would come all the more to, to appreciate, to love, to glory in and delight in Him as our Savior and our King. God, that's our prayer this morning as we continue to worship You with our lives. Amen.